Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today is a special edition looking beyond Murdoch to a generation just after hers, although of course she was still writing at this point in time. So we're thinking about uh, the, the late 50s into the 60s and 70s and beyond. We're looking at people who desire to take fiction, indeed other forms of writing, in a very different direction. And we're using the title The Experimentalists, but as we'll see, um, this title and perhaps one size certainly doesn't fit all of these writers that we're going to be talking about. I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field. Uh, they're both widely published in this area and authors of very recent books on the subject. So I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased that they could be with me today to, to talk about this. Uh, first, we have Joseph Darlington. Hello, Joe. Hi. Thanks very much for being on. Joe's the author of The Experimentalists uh, that came out with Bloomsbury in 2021. He's also the author of Christine Brooke Rose and Postwar Literature. I'm sure we'll be talking about Brooke Rose a little bit later. Uh, that also came out in 2021. That was with Palgrave. And he's also the uh, the author of British terrorist novels, the 1970s. That was 2018, also with Palgrave. He was the editor of the uh, the BSJ, which is the BS Johnson Journal, and he now co-edits the Manchester Review of Books. Um, also joining us is Carol Sweeney. Hi, Carol. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Carol's a reader in English literature at uh, Goldsmiths University in London, and she focuses on the intersections of race, class, sexuality, and gender in modern and contemporary literature and culture. Her first book, From Fetish to Subject, Race, Modernism and Primitivism, examined how the colonial iconography of the black body was deployed in cultural modernism and how anti-colonial and decolonizing cultural movements emerged in opposition to this aesthetic racialization. And she followed up this work by publishing widely on Francophone African writing, in particular by women writers and then by examining racism, anti-feminism and misogyny in contemporary fiction. Her most recent book that we're going to be uh, talking about today is Vagabond Fictions, Gender and Experiment in British Women's Literature from 1945 to 1970. And that's with um, Edinburgh University Press. And that examines the evolution of feminism and sexual identity in post-war Britain. Carol, Car Carol's current research project is on the continuing battleground for women's bodies and sexualities in contemporary literature and culture. And it's going to include work on feminist creative criticism. I also want to note that they both appear in British Experimental Women's Fiction, 1945 to 1975, uh, which was published by Powergrave in 2021. That's a wonderful collection. Um, all of these works I've mentioned and links to, uh, to Carol and Joseph's we um, respective websites uh, can be found in the description below the podcast. So do take a look, and I would definitely recommend getting hold of Joe's Experimentalists and Carol's Vagabond Fictions. They are super works, and uh, will give you a real overview of that uh, fascinating period of literary history. So let's talk a little bit of then about the post-war scene and, and fill in some gaps because I know quite a lot of listeners um, who are with us today won't know that much about experimentalist uh, writers. So can we talk about a little bit about the post-war scene? Carol, I think particularly in regard to realism and then the experimentalist movement as a reaction or maybe a follow-on from late modernism, maybe it isn't a part of late modernism, maybe it is. Um, Carol, over to you, could you fill us in a little bit? Yeah, um, so begin really with the immediate end of the devastation of the Second World War, which of course casts a long shadow on British um, culture and society well into the 1950s. So we've got a, um, a economic austerity that's continuing. But there's also, as many um, uh, writers um, have pointed out, a re-evaluation and a reappraisal of what constitutes culture, and in particular the place 
and obviously the death of the novel mm -hmm. after modernism. Now, this kind of model of um, death of or the moribund state of culture, we recognize from now, someone or other is always proclaiming that the novel is dead. I think Will Self was the last person to do so recently. Um, but the idea of, for example, the famously morose critic Cyril Connolly regarded this period of um, aesthetic exhaustion in which no new crop of novelists were emerging. Now, this uh, pessimism um, becomes um, part of the reappraisal of culture in the 40s all the way through to the modernizing white heat of technology in the 60s. And it's to do with um, liberalization. A lot of liberal um, liberal um, laws are passed in this time, particularly mm -hmm. for women and mm -hmm. freedom, their sexual reproductive freedom, but also financial. And renegotiating mm -hmm. ideas of Englishness, and particularly in relation to, to empire. So the idea of modernism, it, I don't see um, literature or literary movements working in these really concrete waves. Of course, modernism as a historical phenomenon is over by that by the 40s and 50s. But it, um, if we're to think of modernism as formal aesthetic experimentation innovation, this baton idea that comes up a, a lot um, in, in descriptions of this period, um, still continues and will continue um, overall kind of uh, literary periods because it's always going to be, I think, the experimentalists. And whether or not we consider them modernist or postmodernists or post-structuralists, they are the ones that are trying to do something with language, with the novel, with genre, with gender, with politics, public and private, they are experimenting with what you can do um, with uh, literary text. And I think whether we call that late modernism, I don't tend to agree with that, or beginning of uh, a nascent postmodernism. I think um, the kind of experiments um, that our writers are doing are very much of their time. So they're responding to um, expanded freedoms for women uh, Christine Brooke Rose, as, as Joe knows better than me, in, in uh, works such as Out, responding to the idea of race and uh, the Commonwealth and, and, and so on, and, and of course apartheid. And Anne Quinn is responding to the so-called permissive society and how far you can take sex and drugs and rock and roll. So there's a kind of um, social and public um, context to thinking about experimental writing, as well as thinking about not so much modernism, but I think European literature is the, that they look to Europe and the ongoing, um, the ongoing non-realist writing that's being, being done there. And I say that advisedly because realism is a broad church. So that's my long answer to your question, Miles. No, it's a, it's a really good place to start because it gives us some, an idea of that kind of movement of, of the post-war. Uh, Joe, were they, inspired by the the, the the high modernist writers. Um, Carol's alluded to that they're also in, inspired by French writers of the period. Um, so do they see themselves as following on? And also do they see themselves as reacting to that, um, what we might see as a kind of the development of, the, of um, a form of middlebrow writing in, in the 50s as well? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's an 
intriguing question because they definitely were. Almost all the writers cite people like Beckett, who's much more of a contemporary work in the, you know, the 30s as this high point later on. But they're citing people like T.S. Eliot and figures like that as well. They're sort of high modernists. Um, I think what you get, certainly from the 30s onwards, is this reaction against high modernism as something that's anti-democratic. And particularly in the wake of the Spanish Civil War, it's cast as being some kind of, uh, you know, it's very conservative is, is the implication versus writers like Spender and Auden and people like that. I think in the post-war era, that kind of political interpretation has dissipated a long way. And certainly with writers like C.P. Snow and other realists who are good sort of big defenders of the establishment, you have this kind of strange twist where they say that all experimentalism is sort of inherently somehow elitist, whilst also all of their the social values within their novels are very much celebrating a small kind of elite at that time, you know, referred to as the establishment. Um, and so I think it's really with this generation of writers who were children in the war, when when they looked to places like France, where you have writers like the Nouveau Roman, who would very naturally find experimental approaches allied with uh, left-wing and democratic and progressive causes of different types, um, that they managed to kind of create this sort of new approach that allows them to return to writers like, even writers like Ezra Pound, who by this point is, you know, in prison because of um, what he was doing in fascist Italy, um, and, and sort of recuperate that and change its social message while sort of uh, bringing back the, the experimental aesthetic with, within a different set of contexts that yeah, Carol mentioned. Thank you so much. Could you, um, Joe, you want to come back and, and think, because you've, um, your your work kind of is um, perhaps take, takes in um, more authors than Carol's, because Carol's looking at, at gender and ex experimentation in her work. Yours is kind of a little bit, bit more expansive because you include male writers as well. Who who were the kind of the, the main movers and shakers in this movement? Um, and were they coming from a, a highly educated background? From what we've been talking about, it, it seems as if they're very high, very well read and very knowledgeable. So were they coming from um, upper middle class backgrounds or were they or was there a real diversity in approach? Well, I think there was a big, a big diversity there. I think with the book, with, with my book in particular, the biggest job was trying to work out who was going to be the focus of it, because there's writers like Christine Brooke Rose and Anthony Burgess, who are of a slightly earlier generation. So um, Anthony Burgess grew up in working class Manchester and was a grammar school boy um, and sort of uh, he fought in the war and then. Uh, Christine Brooke Rose worked at Bletchley Park in the war with the code breakers. She'd come from Somerville College, uh, Oxford, and sort of transferred into the military establishment from there. Um, but this younger generation, which are the ones that kind of my book forms around, B.S. Johnson, Anne Quinn, Eva Figes, Alan Burns, uh, as the real centre kind of group with mm. people how they interact around them. Um, it's it's slightly more mixed. Alan Burns was from um, quite a privileged background, uh, but B.S. Johnson certainly was working class and kind of worked his way up. He went and got a job uh, as, as an accountant after he uh, finished high school. It was only as a mature student that he went back to uni. Um, 
where he, he also worked with Maureen Duffy, who had a similar background. And Anne Quinn um, never actually managed to get to university. In fact, she gave lectures at the universities when she was a famous writer, and when she then applied uh, in her sort of more mature years to get onto courses, they wouldn't accept her because she, uh, she sort of hadn't got very good results in her exams and <laughs> O-levels and things. So it's a much more kind of mixed group once you hit the 50s and 60s. But I think that's probably also reflective of kind of the wider culture in which the the kind of hold on the establishment is shaking in so many areas, you know, music and fashion, all those things as well. Sure, yes, it's important to take that into account. Um, Carol, when you were putting together your study, obviously you look at um, Anna Kavan, Bridget Brophy, Christian Brooke Rose, Eva Fijas and Anne Quinn. Do you, did, in, in your work, you, you, you talk about what they, they share in common, but also there are a, a numerous, numerous elements of their life and also of, of their work, which, are, which do indeed set them apart. Is it quite difficult to, uh, we've entitled this, the, this, this podcast, the um, experimental writers, experimentalists. Is it difficult to give a kind of an overarching view of them or are they so um, disparate in, in what they wanted to achieve and they're kind of, and they're kind of the, the aims of how they wanted to um, change um, the kind of literary style? It's actually very difficult to do that. Um, what they have in common exactly, is that what you mean? What, what they, their kind of idea of, shifting um, yeah the kind of the question about i guess literary aspiration but also because they are going in quite different directions in how they want to change different uh, elements of the novel it, it's quite difficult to say they form kind of a homogenous group i think i think that's right i think um we know that as joe mentioned that um ava Figes is part of a um a group um around bs johnson i believe and they had a motto down with shabby chicanery and so on but there isn't a kind of um, I know that Brooke Rose and Bridget Brophy wrote amazing letters to each other, mainly about tennis, actually, um, from my research, and Joe probably know that. But they didn't really, they, there's no real connection between them, other than, and I, I do argue this in the book, uh, as women writers, and that's a label for better or for worse, really, I use mm. in the book, they move away from... And you mentioned the word middlebrow, which is very interesting, from this idea of women's domestic writing. And they do that in very different ways. And we end up with the absolute extreme of that with Anne Quinn, which is, a, I think, the most vagabond writing I look at in there, because it really is, in every sense, um, anti-domestic. Anti um, but I think um, that's thematically. Um, but I think uh, all of them are interested in um, avoiding the marriage plot, which means avoiding a certain type of realism which works around, uh, you know, a kind of pre a predestined uh, plot. Um, but they're also interested in um, seeing what language can do going back to the modernists but also thinking as you mentioned the Nouveau Roman in France and I think also people like Duras uh, um, and Colette are very influential my writers so their work is joined by a sense of not adhering to the social realist script of women's domestic fiction and taking particularly with Quinn and um, to a lesser extent, perhaps with Brooke Rose, taking their cues from the cultural revolution of the 1960s and um, the kinds of um, things that were going on in music and arts 
and drug culture and poetry and so on. Um, so they were um, also, I think, interested in um, the idea of Britishness at a certain, a certain level, because they're not really straightforwardly British or any of them in, in um, any way. So there is a diversity of um, aesthetic interest between them, but they are loosely brought together by their interests in um, moving away from domestic realist fiction um, and the marriage plot, essentially. That's really useful to know because it's something that interests me in, in regards to literature is how indeed the kind of, not, not just a question about the revival of, um, of particular forms of writing, but how particular authors can either um, reimagine or reinvigorate particular forms of earlier writing or how in indeed you can pick up on um, different different movements happening you know beyond Britain and questioning about Britishness is something I think that's really important. Joe, do you think it's easy to define what makes these authors experimental? I know I've mentioned that they all are doing different things in regards to experimenting with with form and, and genre and characterization and, and dialogue and etc kind of kind of main building blocks of the novel. But is there something that we you can we could point to and say yes we can recognize this as an experimental writer um or is there some or is it um, a little bit more tricky to kind of define yeah it's it's a tricky one but there's certainly some that you can even just open the book and before you've read any of the words on it you can see that it's experimental because hmm. we've kind of come to have a certain set of expectations about how a book is laid out and the development of print technology in the 60s meant that there was some real sort of liberties taken with this so people like uh, bs johnson presented a book where all the chapters were unbound and you could sort of shift it around uh, and quinn uh, had a two-column structure in one of her books and equally uses different typographical experiments through by Christine Brett Rose has graphs and charts in it and stuff. What we now consider, I suppose, concrete poetry. Um, and so there's some that you can just look at. In fact, Alan Burns in um, Dream America builds it out of images because by that point, uh, the technology developed such that you could include image and text and, and print it very cheaply so he has a whole novel that's done essentially in images um so that sort of thing it sort of screams 1960s experimentalism just because the technology wasn't necessarily there before for it to be done at least not in terms of commercial publishing because a lot of these were big hit books they were available you know in, in train stations and things. um but there's then this sort of slope as to what is and what isn't on the boundaries of that so Eva Fidus's work doesn't really use any of those sort of graphic innovations but has a very kind of unusual approach to sentences where she tries to control the way that the reader receives the information the pace at which it's read which is i guess quite reminiscent of virginia Woolf, and because it is so unlike other books in the way you, you read it and because there is also an intent there by the writer to do something which isn't what a normal book does that would definitely fall into experimentalism um, but when you look at writers like Muriel Spark, because people would mention Muriel Spark to me a lot, oh, she's quite experimental, isn't she? So for me, she's if there is a little wall, maybe she comes off on the other side of it, but just about, because there were many, many writers, especially towards the end of the 60s and the early, early 70s, who had never expressed any interest in breaking with the traditions of the novel before, or quite traditional novelists, who all had a go at experimenting. Um, so I think it's as much a kind of an era as it is, is a movement. And as with those things, there's some people who will um, 
jump in with both feet and some people will just sort of paddle around on the outside. Yeah, so I, I think Spark. I think Spark's a, a fascinating case study in somebody that's kind of half in, half out, perhaps a little bit. You've got something like the driver's seat, which is very experimental, and then maybe you've got a, a something like Mandelbaum Gate, which is just perhaps a little less, and is kind of more in the more to, to you know the, the larger traditionalist um, sort of framework. So was it? You talked about you know thinking about. You, you, obviously, you can't talk about everybody um, that you want to, but whether when you were producing. For, but this is a question for both of you really when you were producing your your books were there people that kind of obviously suggested themselves to you and then there are others that you thought well they they're going to be a, more of a kind of a minor a minor figure and is that a case then of thinking about um kind of, kind of setting up a kind of a experimental canon is it about um sales and and re the the reach i mean it'd be interesting also to think about um you know how are these were marketed and who were they aimed at and did they actually sell um joe you suggested they did which is which is interesting as well so whether it was all, were all those things um at the, at the forefront of your mind when you're producing your books you know thinking about the the development of them um well i i, I can go first on that one just because it's uh, my answer is fairly simple which is that i was sort of letting the um, archives lead on my book so because I was going for more of a kind of biographical sort of cultural history um, you can sort of measure and at one point I sort of did by getting string out putting on the wall who was speaking to who and, and where were they situated and so writers like um, Zulfikar Ghosh who isn't necessarily an experimental writer his novels are not experimental really in any way He's a very central character in my book because he's best friends with B.S. Johnson and he has mm. this big influence within that movement, um, even though he's not actually really an experimental writer. Maybe some of his poetry. Um, but then other figures got missed out just because they were so far out on. So um, I mentioned John Fowles and, you know, The Collector and The Mages and things like that, which were huge books, but yeah. he wasn't really speaking to anyone. He was working very individually. So with my book, it's simple because... I could just go, oh, well, it's not very really useful for my history of who's speaking to who because he's not speaking to anyone. Um, <laughs> so I guess that's my cop out. So yeah. you've, you've kind of got a, a, a um, one group and then almost like a kind of a solar system. If you, as you move out, you've got people that are kind of connected and, and have been, or maybe writing the same way. But aren't, um, yeah, when, you, when you're trying to form a narrative for a, for a monograph, it is difficult, isn't it? So kind of, um, you know, you have to um, have be very careful of, of how you produce them. Carol, same same question to you, Ria. I, I guess because you had a, um, a a tighter brief in what you wanted to write about, that these um, these five authors maybe lent themselves a little bit more easily to the to the work? Um, yeah, they did, but I was very conscious and I've got a very sort of um, uh, kind of stark apology. <laughs> I'm just reading it now. At the beginning of my book about who's left out because you know in this period we've got Angela Carter writing so that's a huge omission and um, what I say is that her work has enjoyed considerable critical attention and doesn't and I, I do actually claim at the beginning of this project that this is the book of critical recovery mm. and when I started it there was very little written on these writers and now there's quite a lot written on these writers so that, that's probably a good thing, well, it's definitely a good thing. But um, 
Muriel Spark is left out because I do see her as somebody who experiments with form in a very particular way, perhaps with links more to Brophy's idea of taking realism and perverting it or twisting it or skewering it around. So it's not, it hasn't got a kind of wacky typographical or it doesn't look any different on the page. In fact, when you're reading it, it seems as if it's quite straightforward and the same as some of uh, Brophy's work. But uh, from, uh, if we leave Spark and Carter out of it, um, other neglected writers that I hope people will begin to write on are people like Rosemary um, Tongton's Penelope Shuttle, Maureen Duffy, Sheena Mackay. Um, we know these uh, are writers. I, why I didn't include those is because I couldn't find I couldn't find a way of bringing them into the narrative that would do their work justice. And they've got a much slighter body of work at this point, but they're, you know, justifiably um, in, in next in line, perhaps for a work of critical recovery. But the, the leaving out is always, uh, uh, the discrimination is always the, the problem, isn't it? Because we want to write on everything. But as Joe says, you had a narrative about the networks. My narrative was more to do with a kind of feminist, but not feminist at the same time, because they, none of them really were identified as feminists, but certainly the development of feminism was a, a, a shaping trajectory in, in my writing. So um, yeah, I think leaving things, leaving some writers out is always difficult, um, particularly with someone like Carter, who was so influential on shaking up um, British uh, mid-century um, literature, you know, so, um, but uh, another project I'm, I'm working on will probably include her influence a little bit more. Excellent. Look, look forward to, to hearing more about that. Um, Carol, do you think that um, the male experimentalist writers are doing something rather different to the female? Is it, is it, is it worth thinking about that binary or do you think that actually we, 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 we should move away from thinking about male and female experimentalist writers doing different things or having different aims? Were they all kind of working on form rather on rather than on sort of thinking about their work as a kind of a social project? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've always been struck by Christine Brooke Roses um, and she was a very blunt speaker <laughs> um, in, in every in her uh, creative um, uh, critical writing, but also in her letters, as Joe will know, we learn a lot about her from her letters. She had no, um, despite the fact she was working in Paris with Sixou there, she really never wanted to join in this idea of um, écriture féminine. So she never saw herself particularly as a women writer, but she writes so brilliantly on how women have been excluded from the experimental or avant-garde mm. circles. And she says very bluntly that, you know, a writer is good or bad regardless of, of their gender, which I kind of tend to agree with. Um, but I do think that to be taken seriously as an innovator rather than imitator, as Brooke Rose says, was more difficult for women at that time because there's this idea that died very hard and perhaps goes on into the 1980s of male genius and leading groups and a kind of charismatic figures like B.S. Johnson who, you know, larger than life and also possibly um, 
and this might be controversial, possibly people who didn't have to worry about, um, you know, didn't have to worry about the, the, the pressures of getting married or um, having children or domesticity in the same way that trammels, um, well, it tra it helped trammeled creativity. So there are very practical reasons, I think, why I chose to focus on gender. And I just found um, what these women writers were doing were, to my mind, extremely feminist, extremely imaginative and creative, but I really liked the way they were dissidents and mavericks and never joined up to any, any movement based around kind of essentialist ideas of femininity or femaleness. So I, li I like their, um, I just like their sort of naughty non-conformism -con um, that I didn't, I never really found in the male writers in the same way. And that's interesting because I think if we come back to Joe, because obviously Joe's work covers the span. He talks about um, Burgess and, and, and Johnson as well, but the, the two ma major male figures in the work. Joe, do you feel that there's a, um, a kind of a, 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 a gender binary as well between what the, uh, the writers are trying to do? And was, was there more freedom for Johnson and Burgess to kind of push the envelope a little bit more? Or maybe it's only at the early in the early years and then maybe later on it, it becomes a little bit easier for, for women. Um. Well, I think Carol hit the nail on the head with some of the really key issues there. That in that each of these writers are very idiosyncratic, and they have yeah. their own kind of journeys that they go on. Um, but as much as B.S. Johnson, for example, was desperate to shatter all of the previous kind of uh, institutions, whether those are political or whether those are formal and aesthetic, um, his attitude for, to women was very, very sort of regressive. Um, and equally, as, as much as Christine Brooke Rose, I think later on by the by the 80s, um, she considers her form of post-structuralism to be allying with uh, a sort of feminist viewpoint. During the 60s and sort of early 70s, she was very much sort of outspoken in her letters, disliking everything that was happening with women's lib, as she would put it. And um, and yet, when she, her book uh, through in 1975 is reviewed in Britain. It's just torn to shreds. And some of the reviews just, in fact, one particular one um, focuses almost exclusively on her picture that's on the back cover of it, who clearly the reviewer thought that she looked a bit too smarmy for someone who's written this very clever book. Um, and it's hard to imagine him saying what he had, what he writes in that about a male author, like, oh, he thinks he's so clever. Look at the picture of him. Look, you know. Is that um, the scarf that she's wearing? Yeah, the, she's got like a foulard that he yeah. points out. It's very yeah. French and chic. This kind of, mm. you know you shouldn't be reading writers that have french sheep clothing um yeah so and, and then but writers like eva fire just takes a lot of that so her first book equinox is sort of the year in the life of uh a woman whose marriage at the start sort of uh, dissolves in this sort of the single motherhood by the end of it um and she really explores these things very very deeply um and her book patriarchal attitudes uh is her, her kind of biggest hit and it's sort of at the time is is considered alongside the female eunuch as being you know, the big books of the British kind of um, second wave of feminism. Um, even though it doesn't bear a huge amount of relation to what she does in her fiction. It, it depends how you read it, I suppose. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely gendered aspects throughout, but it's sort of each each writer's sort of case by case, I suppose. Um, Alan Burns, for example, uh, despite um, some of his imagery in his books being what we would now consider very, very dated, uh, was quite an outspoken sort of feminist and supporter of feminism. So 
yeah, there's a lot it's, of complexity going on. I was going to say, it sounds like a very complex picture, depending on, and it's, again, difficult to kind of um, draw generalizations. How well did these books sell? Um, did they, um, did these authors obviously start off in, in quite small presses and, and then they've sort of built up ahead of steam and became well known and then started selling well into the 70s and 80s? Or as I, I presume, um, it really depended on who, who they were and, and, and who they were working with at this particular point in time. I think um, Brophy, um, Brophy sold, sold very well, um, as far as I know. Um, Christine Brooke Rose, not. She was always um, bemoaning and lamenting um, and berating, actually, her publisher for not getting her out there. 5G sold always, and Patriarchal Attitudes that you mentioned there, Joe, was, as you say, absolutely huge book in um, feminism and, and was very influential you know you go back in the BBC archives it's mentioned all the time not sure about her fiction um Anne Quinn I'm not sure maybe maybe you know more about the sales of Anne Quinn but I can't imagine it sold in bucket loads yeah I, I think if it wasn't for Calder and Boyard's mm -hmm. publishers we wouldn't have the experimental movement in the 60s because even though there are certain writers who aren't published by them, they're publishing the majority of these writers, and a lot of writers that have gone by the wayside now have been forgotten about. Um, they famously published something like 14 Nobel Prize winners, and yet I don't think they turned a profit for a single year of their time in business or something. It was a remarkable, <laughs> a remarkable achievement. Um, but uh, yeah, you did get unusual ones, like B.S. Johnson was surprisingly a, a bestseller, and he did things like he convinced the owner of his publishing company that um, as a writer, he should be paid per annum um, rather than by book. And so he essentially was like a kept writer um, and didn't matter what he put out at that point. So he must have been selling a lot in order to have got that deal. Um, and then, yeah, I think I go into quite a lot in my book is that some writers would have these un unusual breakthroughs with individual books. Um, but one of the big things that's there as well is the Arts Council. So there's a there's quite a conscious move by the experimental experimentalist group to sort of infiltrate the Arts Council and take a lot of the money that they were making available for writers and channel it in the direction of experimental writing. Um, so Anne Quinn, for example, gets a lot of Arts Council bursaries. Um, and her books, I think, sold fairly well, but she managed to all the way through her archive to spend any money she makes faster than comes in. So she has a success, she spends all the money from these success, and then the debts kind of kind of pile up. It becomes, yeah, <laughs> it becomes quite stressful to read her writing by, by the end of her letters because, uh, yeah, she's kind of constantly hoping that the books will get turned into films and get adapted, which eventually they did, but suddenly it was a bit too late. Yeah, I think I'd add to um, Calder and Boyer's um, Peter Owen as well, because we haven't really mm. talked about Cavan. He was extremely influential in, and again, you know, as you're saying, had many Nobel Prize winning book uh, writers on his books. Um, but I think it's hard. I, I don't know exactly how. Um, I think Ice was a very a popular novel for Cavan. I don't know the figures for her other works, but Ice was um, tremendously popular. Um, and, and going back to Brophy, they have a really long afterlife now. Um, some of my students are reading the, the Faber reissues 
of uh, books like Flesh. So that's really nice to know that, um, and Quinn as well, Berg, that oh. they have this long afterlife and that they're being picked up again by publishers and their voices in there to me seem as intriguing and provocative and fresh as they were when um, they, they probably came out. And, and actually there's more context in which to situate them, which makes the conversation more interesting. Mm. Well, uh, you, we can read them alongside your your wonderful um, um, individual works as well to to give us that to give us that background. One thing that interests me is that um, Joe, you talk about this as the kind of the, the decline of this kind of movement and the, the the rise, obviously as ever, rise of new new literary movements and and so on. Why was there? And again, it's difficult to say. I know because it's a quite a disparate grouping for for um, for the experimental writers. Why was there a kind of decline? Um, in kind of the maybe not the interest but kind of the, the sales and why do you think there is in the last five ten years a real kind of resurgent of interest Carol you talked about Faber Fines bringing out Brophy um, um, some of Anne Quinn's books um, being republished in the last few years as well including Berg which I think is a, a masterpiece do you think there are it, it's they, they speak more to the 2020s than they might do to you know 40 50 years ago um, or is it just the kind of the, the natural way of um, of authors? Um, I, I think for, sorry, can I go first? Yeah, please, feel free. Yeah, I think for, specifically for women's writing, because I teach an MA module on this, there's something about the voice in, in Anne Quinn and Brophy, um, and to a lesser extent, perhaps, uh, Brooke Rose and Fiji, there's something about the voice in there that seems to resonate with readers now. And it's, it's, it's I, I keep going back to this idea of a non-conforming voice. And I think with the success of, or the resurgence, minor resurgence of experimental writing with people like Claire Louise Bennett, people like Ali Smith, Anna Burns, uh, Lucy Ellman, there are these writers that, uh, I think um, have reignited some interest, if, if minor interest in, in, in these 50s and 60s writers, because they seem to be um, influenced by them or um, aware of, of, of these earlier works. So I think there's been a small um, re-emerging experimental voice of late and particularly for women writers as I've just mentioned so I think um reading Anne next to I don't know Anna Burns Milkman or um uh, even Olga Tokarczuk and, and um, I think there's a kind of lovely conversation that happens across the decades um between 2021 and the 1950s 60s early 70s Thank you, Carol. Joe, is that your kind of um, experience of, as well of thinking about um, why they kind of um, interest dropped away and then why there's been this resurgence recently? Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. I think um, in terms of the kind of the core group that are in, in my book, the, the reason for them dropping away was two deaths. Sadly, you have Anne Quinn uh, followed by B.S. Johnston in 1973. And really that group doesn't recover from that sort of these big two personalities going um then alan burns moves to america christine Brooke rose by that time is in france um it's sort of the, the actual 
within within that group, there isn't many people left writing. Jeff, Jeff, not only in the liminal figure, he moves up north and starts putting things out in small press instead of publishing with big publishers, things like that. Um, I think also postmodernism and post-structuralism come in, and they uh, sort of post-structuralist theory from France goes to America, create postmodernism begins as a movement. And postmodernism, there's a lot of similarities with the 60s British experimental writers. You can definitely see them as like forerunners of it, but what it's seeking to do is very different. Postmodernism, you know, pri prides itself on its kind of flippancy, its sort of satiricalness, its cynicism. Um, whereas these were very earnest kind of writers in the 60s. They genuinely thought what they were doing was going to change the world, um, which is difficult to see in postmodernism. It's kind of more fun, isn't it? Um, in terms of why it comes back now, I think, yeah, the, the, so many sort of experimental writers in recent years, there have been some great works. I think uh, the only thing I could really add to, uh, to that is that perhaps as much as print technology allowed a lot of these experimental works of the 60s and 70s to happen, the emergence of print on demand and kind of places like eight books where you can find, like, I have no idea how you would track down rare books like 20 years ago. You would have to have a connection of people you write letters to and you'd have to know people. Now I can just go on the internet and see if there's a book available somewhere in the world. It might be expensive, but I can find it and I can buy it. And equally, small publishers can put out runs of new books and they can reissue books without having to commit to having a big print run of five, or, or even just running out 500 copies, which is, is a financial risk. And so I think, um, I think nowadays there's an infrastructure there that allows us to rediscover old books, to bring out books that, that perhaps have a more niche audience. And that has allowed these great writers like August Carter to, to bring stuff out and then get recognised and then, you know, win prizes and things. Do you think also that it's the, um, the opening up of archival materials and the availability also of, um, and the development of memoir, um, letter mentioned letter runs um, and connections between them that open up new vistas for actually how we might perceive them. I think it does complicate the way in which we can group them or not group them um, around particular kind of uh, focuses of interest. But um, it, it's both like it, it, it's both a kind of a um, restricting in, in some way, but also it really does open up a kind of a, a much wider um, way of seeing these authors now in, in the round, I guess, now that everything is kind of complete and we do have more materials available. Yeah. I also think that we are as critics and as teachers in universities, we are a little bit more free from rigid periodization, or at least I feel freer from it, because um, we are not in a particular literary movement, or are we? Is there something I'm not aware of? But we're not in post-postmodernism or what, you know, we, we, we are freer to look back at those movements, I think, and to see, as I said at the beginning, a continuity mm -hmm. of a spirit, an aesthetic spirit of experiment, which I think has gone on since the 18th century, really, um, and, and, and before, because writers are always straining, um, or certain writers will always be straining against um, what is and isn't possible in, in language and in, in form. So I think that a, a, comb a combination of, as you say, Miles, with opening up of archives, and I think Joe and I both had a good rummage around the Harry Ransom Centre um, and the um, 
other other archives. The open the accessibility of those places, and even though you have to go to fly to America, they're relatively accessible online as well, makes for um, a sort of less elite literary critical community. So you've got, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, um, you don't have to know about modernism, postmodernism. You can find uh, really great articles or books linking these writers together. So what I'm arguing, I suppose, is, is for um, a sort of democratization um, I think has happened with um, how we look at literary history and also how we access it digitally now. Mm, yeah, that, that's been the real change since the uh, the turn of the 21st century. I, I, when, when I'm teaching, I, we always have this debate about periodization and the, 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 the response I usually get is, well, we're in the contemporary. And what does that mean? How, you, how can you actually con concern yeah. yourself after, you know, after the, the early kind of major world events of the early 21st century now now where now where are we it's a difficult thing but I, I guess also that also reflects on how um Carol, you were mentioning other kind of um, experimental authors are kind of taking up the baton now mm. um joe do you see the um the influence of these these writers um in the kind of major uh, major authors of the present moment as well yeah certainly i think um there's the sort of return of books, although I, I think it's sort of dying down a bit now, but certainly around 2010 when I was starting my PhD, uh, writers like Daniel Danielewski, is it American or Danielewski? <laughs> House of Leaves guy is uh, mm. oh, yeah. <laughs> doing interesting stuff with it. And there was one called the Raw Shark Texts. And um, there was a lot of experiments with what could be done in, on, on the printed page uh, around sort of 2010 through to 2020, I suppose. Um, and now there is kind of uh, the Goldsmiths Award, for example, that's, that focuses on new writers that are doing sort of experimental works. And um, there's also, again, a kind of flourishing field of small press, uh, yeah, writers that are influenced by these things. I suppose my editorial work in the Manchester Review of Books puts me in touch with a lot of these very, very tiny little presses, and they're all doing sort of quite interesting things. And often they would include when I get sent these books that comment that they were inspired by people like B.S. Johnson. And when I was working on the B.S. Johnson um, as the one, well, sort of main corresponding editor of B.S.J., the B.S. Johnson Journal, there's a remarkable amount of non-literary kind of writers and creators who are also inspired by, by these sorts of writers. So B.S. Johnson, there's a number of bands named after B.S. Johnson's kind of lines and killer lines. And someone did a song about B.S. Johnson. I can't remember the name, Welsh band. Um, David Quantic, who's uh, a writer behind the scenes at the BBC, but has worked a lot with Chris Morris. So if you look at his IMDb, it's like all of these TV shows you'll know. He's a huge fan of uh, B.S. Johnson, um, to the extent that if you ever watch the movie Four Lions, which is about um, some incompetent terrorists, at one point they attach a bomb to a bird, which I am convinced is a reference to Christy Mallory's own double entry, where the main character attaches a bomb to a blackbird. Um, so, so I'm sure there's this uh, hidden network of references from yeah. 60s, 70s experimental writers that are is kind of influencing a lot of culture around uh, contemporary writers or otherwise. That's fascinating. This question about cross pollination, um, you know, between different cultural productions. It's um, an amazing one. Thank you. Yeah, I had, you know, it, 
it's always good to kind of see that kind of perspective. And Carol, for you, it's more, it, it, you're interested, I know, in how these authors that you've written about in this book inspire, I think you mentioned Ali Smith and Lucy Elm and Anna Burns. Um, do they make, ref do those, do our, uh, the authors that are working now make reference to them or do you see that as kind of the, um, as built into the, the in, into the kind of the form of the text that they're writing? Um, I think, um, I'm pretty sure Ali Smith is a Bridget Brophy fan and Christine Brooke Rose fan. Um, I'm not sure about uh, about the other ones, but I, you know, you can imagine that they've, they've, they've got a reasonable grasp on 20th century women's writing. And it's interesting uh, thinking about what Brooke Rose said about um, experimental women writers are as rare and unusual as duck-billed platypuses or something like that. And she said, um, uh, but their beaks might develop into new birds one day. And I think I think that's probably what's happened is there's been a development of this, this spirit, this sensibility of experimentalism that these writers um, have taken from early, earlier writers. And I, I didn't mention um, even, even sort of, like, as you mentioned, memoir, life writing um, has experiments with that um, that kind of vagabond sensibility I was talking about earlier. So writers like um, Deborah Levy and Rachel Cusk, um, as well um, as Valeria Luisielli and Marie Dariussac in France. So I, I suppose I'm interested in um, European, if we can still call the UK writers European, I think we can. Um, how, how that's how that's still going strong amongst um, certain women experimentalists to this day. Yes, it seems to be a very important kind of touchstone for them. Um, and also, I think you can see that kind of um, that, that spectrum of interest that they've got in different different aspects. Mm -hmm. So I guess kind of, as we move towards the the uh, the conclusion of the podcast, what do both of you think still needs to be done? Obviously, the um the kind of the, the the topography of the of the um of this area has been has been now demarcated i guess um joe you've done a, a, a you know some sterling work in that area and, and, and carol you've kind of been focusing in on this question about the vagabond fem feminine and female fictions which has been so important but i know you've obviously mentioned people that were um you didn't manage to include for particular reasons but what would you like to i'm not making you hostages to fortune by saying this is what you're going to do next but what would you like to see um, happening in the field next um i don't know i think being being something of a contrarian i would quite enjoy there was a book that came out in i think it was 1969 or 1970 edited by carl miller that really annoyed all of the experimentalists that was kind of, i think it was british i can't remember the title of it essentially it was like british fiction after the war or british fiction in the 60s yeah. and it was a compendium of all of these writers that was you know, there's and there wasn't a single experimentalist in it, unless you count Anthony Burgess, but they picked his most realistic, like realistic writing. Um, and so interestingly, all of these kind of establishment writers that the experimentalists hate and saw themselves as the kind of they were the, the plucky upstarts versus the biggest establishment writers. Um, nowadays, we're only really interested in the experimentalists. People like C.P. Snow have fallen by the wayside, and no one really talks about them anymore. So um, I'd be kind of curious to see someone do a similar treatment to these 
1960s realists because I personally find their work quite boring, but I'd be interested to hear from an academic <laughs> who can make it exciting, you know? I'm sure that I'm sure that that person is out there somewhere. No, you're you're, you're quite right. We don't generally think tend to 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 focus in on those those particular forms of realism. Um, thank you, Carol. How about you? What would you like to see happening next in the field? Um, I think um, the writer I think who hasn't had um, as much attention is Ava Fiji's. And when I was talking to a colleague recently, she said, "Oh gosh, you know, um, she's about she's a different generation to me, perhaps." Um, she said she, you know, she's so influential and nobody speaks about her now. Her work um, has kind of just disappeared. So I'd like to see a mini revival of her work. And because um, her, her types of experiment are more Beckettian, perhaps, I think, than, um, than the other ones we've been looking at. Um, so in that sense, they're a little bit derivative or have been seen as derivative but I don't think enough attention has been paid to, to her work and also to her activism. So I'd like to see um, uh, work on her developed uh, a bit more. And I'd love to see, and I'm sure somebody is doing this now, if not, I'd, I'd like to do it myself, a really good sparky biography on Bridget Brophy. Um, I really would, because I think because of her work with the public lending right and you know her, her sort of uh, vegetarianism and all rights she crosses so many different areas that I think she was one one of the really key figures of um, uh, British counterculture or anti-establishment culture in 1960 mm. so I think needs to be um, properly um, dealt with yes absolutely I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of Brophy and indeed um about 18 months two years ago we put together a podcast on Bridget Brophy so if anybody's listening and hasn't heard that you can find that by scrolling up or down or wherever the old the older podcasts are on this um, on this series um, and do listen into that and I um, absolutely agree with you I think Brophy is um, superb and is uh, that the moment is ripe for a really good biography of her um, so fingers crossed at some point that will that will come to fruition at the end of every podcast I ask my guests to recommend a a book that our listeners should go away and read. Now this is going to be incredibly difficult because there are so many wonderful authors uh, here. For me personally, um, I'm, I do not own anything. And this is this is a big ad admission. I don't own anything by Eva Figes yet. So perhaps um, I ought to go away and, um, and and pick up one of hers. But if you were to if you were to introduce somebody to um, to these experimentalists, um, which is the one novel by one of the authors that they ought to be picking up and finding? Uh, well, I mean, I would say I probably would recommend, can I say two, by Brophy, um, Flesh yep. and The Snowball. Um, I, 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 I've got very deep attachments to both of those, um, partly because they're sort of indeterminately funny and they've got this really cheeky voice in there and partly because they do this kind of thing with realism that's um all going underneath this realist surface is something else which is quite hard to put your finger on I think so those are the two um I could recommend for Fiji's I'd say winter winter, winter journey um, would be the one I'd recommend Lovely. Um, oh, chronic landing, chronic landing. Yeah. As soon as we as soon as we finish here today, I'm going to jump onto uh, 
jump online and and pick up a copy on your recommendation i shall let you know what i think joe for you what would your uh, what would your choice be um i think it would depend on the person if they for most people i would say bs johnson's christy mallory's own double entry because you can read it in one sitting and it's a masterpiece um and it's very experimental but it's very very funny which is good um, however, if they were a PhD student who really liked obscure novels and, you know, read Finnegan's Wake three times over, I would say <laughs> <laughs> Christine Brooke Rose is through because it's the most difficult of all these novels. It's a total enigma. And it's if you like a kind of challenge, you could spend your life trying to work out every page of it. It's so complex. It's brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to, uh, I, I very rarely give recommendations, but because this is a special one, I'm going to. I'm really going to, I'm going to recommend Berg by Anne Quinn. Um, I think it's wonderful. I think if you enjoy um, that kind of the uh, Patrick Hamilton or Graham Greene, that kind of, uh, the kind of underbelly seediness of um, of rented accommodation. If you enjoy Brighton Rock, for example, there's some wonderful kind of uh, references, I think, to that. Obviously, uh, Berg, Berg is set in Brighton. And also because uh, Quinn and I went to the same school um, as I'm um, a, a local lad um, to Brighton, um, but obviously um, very different, very different times. But I, but Berg is, I think, yeah. a, a wonderful, a wonderful novel. And that's going to be my recommendation uh, for this podcast. So they, there we are. Um, um, we will put all the recommendations and, of course, Joe and Carol's uh, respective books in the uh, description for this podcast. And um, you can um, spend hours indeed um, in enjoying all of the links and all the other materials that we've uh, we've got together for you today. So it just uh, remains to me to uh, thank uh, Carol and Joe so much for um, being part of the podcast today. And I'm sure there'll be so much more to talk about in the future. And of course, as ever, my thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>